Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Writers on Film podcast. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic, and today I'm going to be talking to Lynn Sachs, an experimental filmmaker based in New York. Uh, her films are currently showing on the Criterion channel, and her latest, uh, well, one of her latest feature films, uh, a film about a father who is a wonderful documentary about a portrait of her own father. Well, as a filmmaker, Lynn is also a poet, and her latest collection, Year by Year Poems, is published by Tender Button Press. It's a, a brilliant idea, brilliant concept, and, and, and some beautiful poetry in there. High, comes highly recommended. Remember, if you like the episode, please subscribe and spread the word if you haven't already. If you wish to, you can follow me on Twitter. A Twitter handle is at drjonty, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. Yeah, so I really enjoyed it. What a brilliant concept! The year by year. What a what a oh, wonderful idea. You know, I really appreciate your saying that. And since I have since make writing that book or completing that book, which was in the end of 2019, I've actually taught a few different film poetry workshops, and I find that using that as a construct by which I say to people, you know, think about a year in your life 
and write, I, I say, try to write five things that might have happened at that in that year, but not necessarily the most historically important events, but things that happened in your life and then build on that. And people feel such a relief because it, it takes them right back to their own lives, but from sort of a different doorway into that experience. So. Yeah, I, I, that's exactly that. That's what I loved about the originality of the concept is that it's so kind of literally grounded. There's a, there's, there's a sort of discipline to it. I started my writing, well, I think my first published stuff was, uh, was poetry when I was back in Liverpool, when I was a student in Liverpool. And we used to run a performance poetry group called The Kitchen Club. Oh, I love that name. Yeah, well, we thought of it in a kitchen. So, yeah, it was... <laughs> Well, actually, the program um, that that is has hosted me a few times for this film poetry workshop is is coming out of a foundation created by John Ashbery, the American poet. But uh, the 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 pro, the series is called Text Kitchen. Text Kitchen. Mm-hmm. So I, the analogy works, doesn't it? Though, because you're putting in all these ingredients and you're yeah. putting them through processes of you know acid, heat, and and what yes. have you and it doesn't always work <laughs> and then you test it on your friends and family and you see what they think <laughs> and they're polite usually they're polite what do you feel is the 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 connection between poetry and and filmmaking because i feel when i was reading your anthology and i've obviously i've just seen i've seen your films it's so tempting to draw these analogies and, and and draw these lines between the two things. Do you feel they're distinct or do you feel there's a real connection there? Well, it's interesting that you tell me a little bit of your, your story, which was that you started in a poetry group. And I was also writing poetry before I thought I wanted to be involved in film. And I have found it to be very exhilarating and let's say full of detours that are super helpful to be, to kind of embrace both film and poetry because if you love poetry then you aren't obligated to for example look at your films and think that words only find them their place on the quote dialogue track mm-hmm. you know that that the convention for feature films is you have a music track or if you, you have a dialogue track and you have an effects track. But if you come out of poetry, you like the sound of words and the, sh- the, the, the kind of shadings of words as much as you like the words as they are used as a form of communication, you know, coming from Gertrude Stein or, 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 or you know, other, other poets who believe in, like you were saying, the spoken word. Mm. How does the word like enter you viscerally, not just cerebrally and so that relationship to words like is very liberating as you're at as you're working in film and 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 I like I like to I would say I've been very inspired by Robert Altman's films because Mm. I feel that he creates these layers of what you call dialogue track so that you don't always understand them narratively but you understand how people relate to each other almost like both physically and rhythmically and rhetorically, all those other ways that people, people's bodies and minds like bounce up against each other. So, but I think the convention in most, in both documentary and narrative filmmaking is to think of words as 
a way to move story. My, my experience of, of certainly reading poetry was I always saw a close connection between poetry and cinema, not, not because so much of the sound of the words, but the techniques being used, the way a scene would shift, the way, uh, you know, within the space of a phrase, some, there would be the, the, the equivalent of a jump cut or a dissolve. Oh, exactly. And so I totally agree. Like a line break is in poetry is really a parallel experience mm. to a, an, a, a, a let's say a, like an Eisensteinian shift in, in a cut and film that isn't strictly about cause and effect which is, is more of a kind of, you know, more of, the, of, a, of a template in a more conventional way of working. But, but the line break and the cut, if you see those as very comparable, is very kind of exciting. <laughs> when did you start working on, on films then? When, were you, when did you first sort of pick up a camera? And, I mean, was it you were writing poetry first? Yeah, I was, I was in a poetry group kind of like yours. Um, in college, and I was also writing poetry in high school pretty actively. And I had a, a, a poetry magazine that we started at my high school, which we called Scheherazade. So, you know, it was about like that's a thousand and one story, you know. And so that was such a big part of my life. And, and I was the kind of person who I actually was not that, that, that interested in the movies growing up because I, I, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and there were not opportunities to see alternative films. And there were not opportunities to see films by women. Like it, I never, you know, I'd never heard of a woman director. So I, I just wanted to make art and, and um, actually I, my major in university was, was history. So I was very involved in academics and, and writing and also art making. And, and then I started to um, go to the movies that, you know, that they offer on campus. And I saw Rainer Fassbender's movies. And that was like an intense, intense revolution for, I mean, to, for me to think that films could be that raw and that informal, but also very, 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 very visual Mm. Uh, was just astonishing to me. And then I lived for a year in Paris, you know, where you could just hop around at midday and see something like Les Enfants de Paradis, or you could see a film by Chantal Ackerman or Marguerite Duras. And, and that was just eye-opening to me and, and uh, like so exciting and seemed very parallel to like to writing poetry. So then uh, I went back to college and started to get more interested in the possibility of filmmaking. And I took a course when I finished uh, um, at the School of Visual Arts here. And my, I had a great uncle who gave me a wind-up regular eight millimeter camera that is the size of your hand and doesn't even use a battery. I started to shoot with that and had that. He, he was always really encouraging of my making images. And I, I was super fond of uncle Charlie and actually his, his wife, my aunt, aunt Isabel was a lover of poetry. So she had hundreds, maybe thousands of artists made books. She just had this collection. And I'm not trying to say everyone in my family was into art, but she happened to have those books. 
and she didn't have many people in our that who were interested. So I would go over and look at those books. So they were really important to me. And and then I started to discover sort of what you would call experimental documentary and uh, saw, for example, the film uh, the film. This is a little bit later, but Sans Soleil by Chris Barker, and that was a really a major revelation to me. That that film. What, what in what way was um, was the Chris Marker film? Uh, you know, what, what struck you? What what affected oh, you? Oh my goodness! I love that he was a filmmaker, mm. not a director. So that it came out of an art making practice and a living practice, and for him also a tr- the notion of travel, and that as you traveled, you didn't just imbibe other people's worlds you thought about them or you you thought about how it allowed you to understand your culture better by seeing another culture i loved the emphasis that he made he had on on articulating his politics and identified with what i would call a left-wing sensibility and that's remained really important to me to to see, and that kind of comes out of my, my degree is in history. So, you know, trying to see conflict, see how things resolve themselves. My films are always aware of history and what brought us to a certain place and then how, um, how we can climb our way out. And I thought that Chris Marker did that. And he also worked alone. And I thought that was really liberating because it wasn't appealing to me necessarily to work with a big crew. You know, over the years, I've worked with people on teams and I've collaborated on a lot of things, but I don't have to do that. Mm. I'm, I'm pretty self-sufficient. So That's the, the sort of poet in you that, you know, you, once you've had a pencil and a piece of paper, everything else seems superfluous. Yeah. yeah. It's funny as well when you're telling the story of, you know, going to Paris and because I've got these poems very fresh in my mind, I'm going, oh, that's poet. That's, that's uh, 19. Yeah, like, actually, there's a poem I wrote about standing in a telephone booth that really dates me. You read that one. It's from 1982, I think, uh, where I'm, you know, in order to call home, I have to put coins yeah. in the in the telephone, and then you know, and I'm imagining my brother, and and that was a real you know, early '80s. To he was kind of let's say figuring out or announcing that he was gay, and and you know, I don't know if you ever saw this, but it used to be that. If you wore an earring on one ear, that meant, yeah, you're gay or not gay. You know what I mean? I don't remember which ear was which, but it was like a semiotics of um, of, of your identity. <laughs> I think we're, we're a fairly similar generation. I, I definitely spent a lot of time in phone booths in my youth, phoning people up. And, and also the idea of distance as well. You yes. know, when you went to France, I think it's it's a different experience to somebody going to France today in the sense of, or, or any any you know, distance. Well, also a big part of my films, the exploration in my films has to do with translation. So like actually one of the films that's going to be in the Criterion channel is called Which Way is East? And I made that in Vietnam in 1994. My sister was living there. And, you know, we were people who'd grown up during what Americans call the Vietnam War. And so my sense of Vietnam came through the the mainstream news until I went there. And it was really about witnessing it and listening to stories. But a big part of it was also that 
I was an outsider and that I had to recognize that my language being English was not the dominant language. And I think that's a really important position to, to, to have to, for people to have, especially Americans and especially English speaking people. And um, it's, that has changed so much now because more and more people speak English. And, and so there's like, there's an assumption that, that we, we can carry our language. And back in those days when we were teenagers or, you know, we had to go to places and have, and, find the tools to communicate on the terms with the people um, who, whose community we were, or country, or we were visiting. And, and so actually in a lot of my films, like also the, the Washing Society, which is in the Criterion program as well, I have whole sections in Spanish and whole sections in Chinese, not very long, but some, mm where the listener, if the listener is English speaking, has to have that sense of alienation. And it, I don't always deliver subtitles. And, and I think subtitles are a way of, of bringing people back to a dominant language all the time. So I think it's important to make us feel, to listen to the, to the texture of a language and how it's delivered, not just to its, you know, it's, it's translation and then which it becomes in a default that you just stop listening. So yeah, the translation becomes a sort of who, I think it was Brecht who was giving evidence in, in some sort of hearing and he was, they read out one of his poems and said, you know, look, this is a, obviously a communist poem, Mr. Brecht. Did you write this? And he said, no, but I wrote a very similar one in German. Oh, that is fantastic. That is great. That idea that it's translations are always similar, but they're never the same. Well, there's an essay that Walter Benjamin or Benjamin wrote called "The Task of the Translator," and I even made a film called "The Task of the Translator." So uh, that was inspired by that that essay, and he says exactly what you are saying that that actually the translator is offering a gift to the original, but offering something new that they're actually, again, they're in parallel, but they are not equal. So, um, and they, ha- and you can sometimes invigorate text by, through its translation, but don't erase it as, as a, a journey. <laughs> I was thinking as well, when you weren't, when you didn't use the subtitles in the film, I was also thinking of the Claude Landsman documentary shower, where he, he sort of purposefully has, uh, goes through an interpreter for many of his interviews and keeps the inter- keeps the original and the interpreter's translation in when, of course, he could have reduced the film by a third if he cut out the interpreter and just subtitled the original uh, testimony. But I, I think just I don't know. There's something about making it making putting on screen that that process and saying, look, this is going through several people's heads makes it much more powerful and much more kind of honest, really. I. Totally agree. And I have to say the Shoah series and Claude Lonsman's work have been so important to me. I am so grateful that you brought that up. Uh, It's interesting because at least in the United States, Shoah as a, it was a television series was the first introduction to our culture of a mainstream 
recognition of the word Shoah, like the Shoah. You know, people talked about the Holocaust, but not as much as you would think. And that film was so important. And one of the things that Shoah did, which has really influenced my work, again, going back to the, the film I made in Vietnam, which weighs East, but also The Last Happy Day, which is also in the Criterion series, which has to do a film where I look at World War II through a, a very distant cousin of mine, is that what Claude Lonsman chose to do is not to use images of concentration camps because I think he thought that was too facile mm. and that he thought, I, I want to evoke what it was to be in those camps or to witness them through the words. Uh, and actually, this is kind of a cliche, but when people say an image, you know, a photo or an image is worth a, is worth a thousand words, I actually, some even though I'm an image maker, I actually think a, a thousand words can be more potent because it's about interpretation and it's not so so uninflected. It it has that subject. Like how do you express subjectivity? And I and so when he didn't include the the images of the concentration camps, he made his viewers go into their own archive, the internal archive of that, which I think can be more haunting. Now, if you were to make Shoa in 2021, I'm not sure that you could rely on a broad audience to know what the concentration camps look like. And so it might be different today. I, I actually wonder about that because like wonder about young people and what, and you know, how, how accessible those images are in, in our own internal archive. But I think that was a very interesting choice of his. And I think it activates kind of in a Brechtian way, as you were talking about earlier, but it activates the audience to the spectator, we'll say, to really participate in a more, much more active and less passive way. Thinking about today and thinking about 2021, boy, we I think we need a, we need a shower. We need people to see shower much more than maybe when he originally made it. You know, it feels like it's it's a film that's only increased in urgency. Absolutely. And and similarly, you know, in terms of looking back towards Vietnam in in, in your film, there's a sense that uh, I'm, it's interesting that you come from a, a background of history, because I feel this is we, we're really living in a period where history is much more important than maybe it was a little while ago. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe every age has its catastrophe and where we're just living through our. Well, I found it to be extremely interesting to at least here in New York, but maybe across the world. So there's a two, there are a few days or weeks that people in New York can walk through. Like almost everyone I know who is older than 24 right now mm. can tell you exactly what went on in their lives on, sep on September 11th, 2001. Like walk through the day. Yeah. You know, uh, walk you through that narrative. There aren't many other days in one's life that you could do tell recount the whole day. But if you lived in New York that day, you probably can. Um, and then for me of, of late uh, would be the first week of March of 2020 when we, it, but it would be different in Italy. You, you were, it would be earlier <laughs> probably, yeah. but here, the first week of March, people can tell you sort of the, a, a, mi a micro history of, well, then March 1st, I thought this, but by March 
six that this was happening. And it, it's very interesting to hear them. And it's a little bit like going through a, an internal um, home movie. <laughs> and also it uh, history works in another kind of way because we rewrite it as people share it with us. And then we think we, we, we reappraise how we remember it. But, and in my own filmmaking, I am always interested in the retelling of things in a subjective way rather than the accuracy of exactly what happened. How do you sort of balance what you were saying earlier as well about uh, your admiration for Chris Marker and that sort of political urgency of doing something with sort of having a subjective point of view and having, you know, wanting to express yourself? You know, there's a, there's this constant, call it a conundrum between um, being an artist and, and, and being someone who wants to create change in society, like right. we call that an activist. Um, and I've always been it mo- like moved and, and as engaged as I thought I could be in political action, but I don't know if I would call myself an activist, like, because I, I think that's a, cl- that would be misrepresenting who I am. So it's, probably that I make films that I hope will make, will cause people to ask questions and to re-examine their situations, their context. If you were in a movie, like the diegesis of that, of your, your place in the world, but I don't make films that tell people what to do or what to think. So in that way, you know, I'm not sure if my goals um, are to they're, they're to change thinking and hopefully to change, make change in the world. But I don't accept, expect people to walk out of my films and go do something like do a political act. But to think about like if you saw Epistolary, uh, which was about it, which is a short film and also which is going to be in this Criterion series. The letter um, to Jean Vigo. Yeah. 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 Um, I was horrified by the, I'll say it, right-wing effort to, to, to over, not overthrow the government because they were perfectly happy who, with the president, but they were overflowing the democratic system trying to in the United States by breaking into the Capitol on January 6th of this year. Um, and I wanted people to think about that and to think about, well, where does that impulse start and also, can we look at the, the period of childhood in all of our lives as, as innocent or <laughs> does a kind of um, venal way of being start at that time, like in the novel, Lord of the Flies, <laughs> you know, that kind yeah. of evil. So I, I guess that's a film, that's a very short film where I'm very pleased and, and fascinated and awed by the anti-authority um, gestures in uh, Jean Vigo's film, Zero for Conduct. Um, but I, I also wonder, like, what about, what, what happens when that itself goes awry? So that's, it was, it's really, I don't come to an answer there. I just want people to think about it. <laughs> I think that's what's been so discombobulating for the, for the left uh, recently has been the fact that a lot of those, 
a lot of iconography and those ideas of, you know, the French Revolution, uh, Occupy Wall Street, V for Vendetta, Guy Fawkes masks and all this idea of, you know, uh, make trouble and protest and stuff like that has been sort of co-opted by the right. And I f- suddenly find myself going, where are the police? <laughs> you know, that's like. <laughs> well, actually, there was supposed to be a right wing protest two days ago, Saturday in Washington, D.C., and it's so funny because it was a flop mm. um and suppose one of the reasons is was they, they said there was a sea of police officers there and I, when i heard that and i i you know part of me is like for the abolition of the police but then <laughs> you know when there's a right wing mandate i'm kind of happy the police were there in their uniform so it's confusing it really is and i made a film actually in 2001 about civil dis- disobedience, and uh, I'm 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 actually an advocate of civil disobedience as long as it's nonviolent and non dis you know that that people's lives are not ruined by it. But I made a film uh, about a, a group of Catholic anti-war activists who broke into a selective service or draft office here in the U.S. and burned draft files with napalm. Um, so it was like a performance piece. It's called Investigation of a Flame. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I like that disruption of the rule of law when there's a, a good a cause that I believe in, that I believe in. <laughs> <laughs> and therein lies the rub. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. But no, but the thing was, nobody was hurt. Right, so, right. Yeah, I, I've got a horrible feeling that the uh, the squadristi of uh, and and all the all the neo fascists have no such um, quibbles or, or or compunction. You know. Um, yeah. Uh, I was watching two of your films uh, earlier today as well. Uh, I watched um, Maya at twenty four, which is your film with your daughter running around in circles. What a neat idea! Again, just like. <laughs> That's just like a that's that in itself is where I would connect the, the poetry. I would just say that's a poem, you know, that's just a poem. It's a poem that is with music and with images, but it's it's a, the same way that you would read a poem and you would have that multivalency. You would have, have lots of different meanings coming through and lots of different ideas coming through, but at the same time, very difficult to sort of pin down. Or the minute you start to put it into words, it's like, nah, that doesn't quite capture what I'm feeling. But it, thank you so much. But what it but that that seemed to be like a, a preoccupation that you have uh, as well in the the um, your mo- most one of your most recent films I think in terms of feature length films uh, the film about a father who I was interested in this idea of family you were talking about family earlier on in terms of your aunt, your auntie and uncle and how much they influenced you and then your brother so family seems to be extremely sort of present for you I, I'll just say that I I think that your parents have an imprint on you and you have then it's generational and then you have an imprint on your your child children and and i'm interested in how those things pass through and some people talk about the trauma of the past but i'm also interested in something that is maybe less easy to define but has to do with this like uh, a kind of conveying of sensibility of ways of perceiving and how we actually just simply look at each other and we and then it becomes like a mirror back on ourselves so um with Maya at 24 
there, it, I'm filming her at three different ages, and I, the only direction I give is let's let's both go in a circle and try to keep looking at me and into the lens of the camera. And at certain periods of time, like when she's six, sixteen, and twenty-four, she confronts that or she's frustrated by that or she's very compliant there's different kinds of relationships that have to do with a parent telling a child what to do and like you could have defiance or you could have agreement or you know also I think in her eyes as she gets older she becomes more self-conscious so I was interested in that in a non-verbal way um, and you probably noticed in film about a father who I asked my father, I asked my father to walk in circles around me. And I, I like that there's this tether. I, I, I think that, that, that the tether between the camera lens and the face of the person being filmed is something that hasn't been explored enough, uh, but that is revealing in a lot of different ways. Like when people in a conventional documentary say, don't look at the camera lens, look three quarters off. That kind of compliance doesn't allow for a kind of physical, a phys the physicality that could happen and, and, and between the two bodies, between the person behind the lens and in front of the lens. So I don't like those kind of rules, but I've been told that that it's expected, <laughs> but I, I've always resisted that. If you apply too much to those sort of conventions, you just end up with cliche. Surely you just, it just, everything looks the same. Every, everybody's doing the same thing. What, one, I was shooting that, that film I mentioned before, Investigation of a Flame in 2001 by myself. And a friend of mine who worked for National Geographic said, well, how are you going to be able to shoot that by yourself? Because the person you're interviewing is going to be looking right at you. And I said, well, that's fine. I want that energy. Mm. Uh, and, and there's a point where I look, the camera, meaning my, me, looks off during a point where the person I'm interviewing was talking about something and I look out the window as people do. Some, and, and, and sometimes we look out the window because we're so focused that we have to let our minds you know, digest what what we've heard. And so again, that would be considered like the breaking of a rule. You're supposed to keep the camera on a tripod and you're supposed to have the person look off by like off access a little bit. And, uh, you know, Errol Morris plays with this too, but it's, it's, if you work only within those templates, then there's no nuance to the image. Do you think documentary as well has this sort of perhaps cause it because of this small scale element to it, you really, really need, you know, one person can do it, you know? It seems to foster perhaps more independent creativity than than sort of fiction filmmaking. At times, but not always. And I think that's happening more and more in probably the last five years, but about maybe six years ago, I went to a documentary film festival and they had a panel on documentary as a practice and they invited six or seven directors who were there at the festival and the first question that the facilitator asked or not question it was a statement that he said he said well of course we all know that a good documentary starts with character and then I thought oh that's really rotten. I disagree with him completely. Mm. Plus, that's saying we owe everything to literature and narrative and, and to those, those conceits or tropes that 
maybe that, that's why Chris Marker was so exciting to me because it didn't start with a character. Mm. Maybe you find a character. And I think the film that I made with my father, a film about a father who he becomes a character, but he's a fragmented character because of my frustrations. <laughs> um, and, and that those fissures of maybe allow people to enter in a more personal way. Whereas if you just made a character driven documentary, then you feel when you finish, Oh, I know that person, but do I know myself any better? Probably not. And there's a, re- and in that movie, there's a real sense of movement as well and expansion of interest. Cause I think it, it very much starts focused on your father and you think, oh, okay, we're going to discover who this guy is. And, and then by the end of it, it's really, it's really moved off to expand and include all the children. And it's become, you know, a much broader portrait. I appreciate your, you're saying that because it, that is exactly what happened. Uh, that, that it was, it, it occurred to me while I was making that, it, that he, this is a little bit of a cliche, but since there are not ultimately nine children in my family, my father's children, that it was sort of like these planets circling, circulating around the sun and some planets were hidden and then other planet like were always there. And, and I'd actually really tried to work with that. And I guess like, this is too obvious, throw it out. But in my, and I'll say it to you now, it really was like this cosmos, you know, and, you know, there was this idea, oh, pl- oh, there's a, te- you know, there's a new planet, like we ha- have it, you know, and, and that kind of thing where we think everything's set. We thought the solar system was set. Oh my God, there's another one. And all of us have this way, especially as we become adults, where we start to say, oh, oh, okay, now I understand the matrix of my existence. I am the child of these two people. Maybe you knew them, maybe you didn't. And then I exist this way. Now I can be in it. And now that's my childhood. And then I can go forward. But for me, you know, all of a sudden I had a sister who existed like well, like around or around the time that I was becoming an adult, but I didn't know it. So it was a, it was a, it shook me up to, to have to like do a revisionist history speaking of history. I wanted to reveal that, that kind of, and I guess I would say the film plays around with hindsight a lot so that the Mm. film isn't all knowing. And that was super important to me that I wanted you as a viewer to understand that I'm not, I wasn't always the, if the wisdom that comes with hindsight is not just a, a, a given, you have to kind of recognize that you are now more aware and that your hindsight has at, at different points is is influenced by by things that were secrets and then that were revealed and you start to doubt everything yeah i mean there was a, that scene with your sister oh you'll forgive me if i don't get the name right is it, oh, is it beth. beth yeah exactly and the, that scene is so so much i feel the, the moment where you you suddenly realize the cost of this yeah. of this yeah. um and also the sense the what she says about going around the house and looking for photographs of people what yeah. I, that that really felt like oh my, someone else is was sort of making their own documentary just in their own head here and well that is so that is so well put and i i don't think i could have thought yes that we're all constructing the documentary of our lives that's in our consciousness that we have to move through the world and we think we know who we are and then we like she literally didn't know who she, completely who she was mm. um and there's an there's photographs from my other sister whom i didn't know about julia where she's showing these very 
traditional pictures of her with her mother and with my dad at different ages. And they're, they're set up in the most snapshotty way, but they're in her photo album, not in mine. Mm. So, and I think that, that the compartmentalizing that was part of my story and our story would be really hard now because of cell phones. I think that, that it's a peer, it, it's that, that our lives are much more documented in a more fluid way now. And that probably some of, some of those images would have been shared via social media, for example, or DNA, like all a lot of different ways that I would be more aware now than, than I was in all those decades. Like the science and the technology would make the, that compartmentalizing of my dad's life really impossible, I think, now. It does become as, as well a sort of history of its own recording because you have, you're using video uh, and you're, you're, you're using the flaws on the video and the strobing of the, um, you know, the static that, that I recognize all too well from, from terrible video but cameras. I'm so glad you brought that up, John. I'm really, really, really glad that you picked up on the fact that I used the, so quote, progression of the technology, you know, mm. People, when people talk about the history of film, and you, in a, in a, they usually say, and then we had, we had the silence, and then hooray, we had this, the talkie, you know, we had sound came in, but then there's a lot of people who say that ruined the image because you were, you were indebted to sync, to the sync experience, you know, and the freedom that came before sync sound was like such a, an homage to the image. So then we, you know, we get, stuck with sync sound and and everything is so clunky and you know Mm, and and the emphasis is on on dialogue and the delivery of dialogue and the clean delivery of dialogue and all that kind of stuff so um but you picked up on the shift from 16 millimeter film to to early consumer vhs video to high aid to to um, Super 8 film, movie film, and back to like the only constant is 16 millimeter film. And it, to me, it's the most beautiful. You know, it, it, it ages best. And I used the same camera in the er- late 80s, early 90s, when I was starting to shoot with my dad that I use today, which I bought for $400. Oh, that's about value, value for money. Yeah. And I bought it used. And it doesn't require a battery. And I've taken it all over the place. I've taken it to Vietnam. I've taken it to Italy. And I'm not dependent on electricity with that camera. And so it's really interesting. Now you shoot with your cell phone and you shoot with like what's all different formats that we have today. And it's considered more precise or more sharp, but is I'm not sure that ultimately, it, I don't think it's better. I, and that's why I wanted to show those the materiality of the film growing up with us and moving through time, not just the subjects. And also I would say I wanted to play with skin too, because the skin will grow old. There's nothing you can do about that. Like my dad grows older at exactly the same rate as I do. So we are a constant, but we change. Whereas the medium of expression visual, you know, does change, but it shit like, even like the poetry of it or the discourse of it is different according to which machine you use. 
how how did the rest of the family feel about the film? Have they all had an opportunity to see it? And did you sort of did you feel any um, sort of qualms about that? Or yeah, I was really 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 nervous. Mm. Some of my siblings came to the first screening, which was in Park City, Utah, last year at the Slam Dance Film Festival. It was the opening night, and then for showed a few other nights. And then other uh, siblings, as well as my dad, came here to New York to the Museum of Modern Art, which was in February of last year. And actually, a lot of people told me that was the last time they were in a theater. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll say it was lucky for me that the the it's called Documentary Fortnight at the Museum of Modern Art was in February because everything closed down in March. It's beginning to reopen, but people are still hesitant to go to theaters. And then, so not all my siblings came to either of those live events. Then others saw it when I took it to them. And then I'll say one, one of my siblings hasn't seen it yet. I have given that sibling many opportunities, but they, they haven't chosen to see it, but I hopefully they will. And they, they've been super supportive, Mm. just nervous about how they might look or something like that. But it's been a really, it's been very gratifying. And, And I think that in general, they all say that making the film in that day that you pointed out when Beth was speaking about her life brought us closer as as a family. And we now meet every single Sunday with my dad on Zoom. So we met yesterday. And so that was the, you know, that was the first time, but we've kind of continued it, well, because of the pandemic. We weren't doing it in 2018. But so since the film has been finished, we've met almost every week. So it's um you know, the, the current social situation of our earth has in some ways brought an additional intimacy in a way. It's strange how we're, we're relating through, I mean, we're doing this interview on Zoom as well. And it's a, we, we've all got you, I mean, Zoom, you know, three years ago, I didn't know what, <laughs> if such a thing even existed, you know, the idea yeah. of, even the idea of Skyping wasn't particularly, you know, certainly wasn't present in a lot of people's lives. And now we're, you know, we've gone from being maybe a bit cr- overly critical of screens to absolutely, you know, des- desperately needing them for, for this kind of thing. I know. It's why I'm actually about to, I, every year I organize a lecture at New York University. I used to teach there and I'm not teaching there right now. It's a lecture called The Experimental Lecture. And it's it's been going on for 11 years. So Jonas Mikas, you probably know his work. He was one of the people who gave a lecture and Barbara Hammer, a, a lot of experimental filmmakers said the lecture is sh- lecture itself is very inventive. Mm. So this year it's supposed to happen in person. I, I canceled last year, but nobody who's not part of the community at New York University will be able to come. And since I'm not a part of the community at New York University, I don't even know if I'll be able to be in the room and I'm the organizer. So I'm thinking, I think this would be better on Zoom because then we could invite anyone all over the world to come. And it it has a bit of a reputation in the experimental community. So it's funny, like I have the the sort of a quasi option of doing it live and I'm thinking Zoom would be better. (laughs) <laughs> in what ways is it an experimental lecture is it the actual format of the lecture is, yes. is shaken up yes, that's the main thing I, I we we don't allow the lecturer to show finished films they're supposed to talk about failed projects things that just couldn't get done or things that that um 
are you know still sitting on the shelf but are haunting you i want it to be about process and about doubt you know these are generally people whose films they're they're called them veteran artists like do you do you know you know, do you know jonas mikas did you ever see his yes film? yes yeah yeah i mean he was amazing we had so many people who came for that lecture that we had to have an additional room actually with closed circuit tv Oh, there you go. And, it's got yeah, there you go. It was the closest thing. And what the, the when Barbara Hammer, who's like a great hero of mine, gave her lecture, she carried the projector around up and down the the aisles of the auditorium and projected on every single wall, but the but the screen. And the talk itself is really inventive. So it comes out of experimental film, but the talk is not your traditional artist talk. So I've been doing it for eleven years. Well, let's hope when 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 is that does that take place when? november 19th okay so hopefully i'll try to invite you it, <laughs> well, it will definitely be on zoom the question is the live part of it but we'll see <laughs> oh well i'd love to i'd love to watch it yeah absolutely uh, and so what what is your next sort of project now that you've uh have you been have, have you found like lockdown and everything uh, a moment where you've you've become productive because I've talked to people who've had both reactions some people have been really productive other people have been like I can't get anything done I guess I'll just answer I I've actually made five or six films films uh short films and I'm working on a longer essay film so I've had some extremely exhilarating collaborations I made a film called Girl is Presence with a poet from California and that film wow it's traveled to a lot of places and it went to Germany went to Brazil into Argentina, you know, a lot of different spots. Um, Epistolary has shown in Russia and in the UK at the Sheffield Film Festival. It showed in Spain. So it's been interesting because I'll do Q&As sometimes through Zoom and, and often with other people who were in the same program, which I love, and especially if they give us a chance to watch each other's films. And with film about a father who that film showed in virtual theaters or mostly around the U.S. And now it's uh, been, I'm supposed to go to, to, well, I'm planning. I already bought, I already have the ticket, um, but I was invited to the um, the Cork Film Festival in, in Ireland. In is Ireland, doing, yeah. yeah, they're going to do a artist focus on my film. So they're showing 11 of my films, including film about a father who, and then film about a father who is supposed to show, and it, it is set to show at the Cinematheque in Paris. So I was invited to go there. So I'm, I'm going to be doing quite a bit of traveling in November, which I haven't done any uh, except for family kinds of things in almost two years. So it's actually been a kind of a good time to work. I've, I've been, as I mentioned, teaching quite a lot of these workshops on film and poetry. And so that's been wonderful because at a lot of my students in those workshops have started collaborating and making films that have even shown in film festivals. So I'm very proud of them. And coming back to the poetry, it, that uh, the the uh, the collection that I read, it, it feels open ended. It feels like uh, you could easily continue that for a second, third, fourth volume. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I, I'm still writing poetry. I, I am actually going to read a poem publicly on Sunday. Uh, I didn't. I'm not writing in exactly that way, but I wrote a long poem which I called "Pandemic Time," that. <sighs> includes a lot of like the scruff and detail of this last few years. Like there's some things I already miss about Panda. For example, there were about three months 
where we were on lockdown and we were at home all the time. And then at 7 p.m. at night, everyone would go outside and bang pants. Right. And it doesn't sound very typical thing for people to do in the United States. It sounds like you would. I know they do that a lot in Argentina and I love it. Maybe we picked it up from Argent the Argentines. Um, but I thought that was a kind of wonderful, wonderful and kind of musical interaction. It was supposed to be celebrating the first responders, but it was also very bonding just on the street because it was like this symphony for about one minute every day. I think it it might even have started in Italy. I don't want to don't want to claim too much for oh, Italy. Well, I wouldn't but... say it started here. I think we copied somebody. So probably in Italy. It sounds like yeah. Just because we had the we had the worst European outbreak very yeah. early on, and I remember what what happened. I remember there being some famous film of they they would go out on the balcony. You know, as you say, seven o'clock in these tenement buildings in Napoli and in Rome and some of them there'd be an opera singer <laughs> so there would be like so they would sing the national anthem and they would there was this phrase that was being that you saw flags everywhere of this phrase uh, puto andra bene everything is going to be all right and um after uh, six months people began to take those signs down <laughs> because I think it was like well maybe not but we we in the end it was okay I think in the end uh I think I, I'm very because I'm between England and Italy. So I went back to England once. I haven't been back to England for over a year now. But um, I was impressed with the way Italy handled it, and less impressed by the way England handled it. I have to say. Well, there's one last one last question I'd yeah. like to ask, which is the um, we always ask um, everybody on the on the podcast to give me a film book. Oh. I prepared. Ah, right. Yes, okay. very good. But this is a podcast, so I have to tell you. Yes. Finish your question. Finish your question. No, no, that's it. I want I want your film book recommendation uh, straight away, please. Okay. <laughs> I could say I did my homework, but it was so easy. I wouldn't, that it wasn't really homework. So I would say the film book that I go to regularly, I go to as a muse, I go to as, for guidance. I go to, to, to acknowledge that, that there is this weave between sound and image and that image should never take precedent over sound, but must be like, it must recognize the subtleties of sound in a way that, that gives aware, that enhances awareness. And I would say that would be notes on the cinematographer by Robert, Robert Bresson, Robert Bresson, because I think it's, a wonderful book full of good advice and a, a book that can apply to experimental filmmaking, documentary filmmaking, narrative filmmaking. You know, I mean, when I think of Bresson, I, I do think of, I do think of narrative filmmaking, but mm. there's such a, a brilliant awareness of space and light and, and the qualities and possibilities of silence and how that like that pause gives time for reflection and a kind of intense engagement so i would pick notes on the cinematography brilliant brilliant that's a, that's a i've never read that i'll have to uh i've obviously seen bresson films but uh i've never read that book so i and as a as a filmmaker a huge inspiration there yeah and and actually i was reading the back which is interesting there's a quote can i just read it out loud sure go ahead um, by none other than Jean-Luc Godard, 
He said, Bresson is the French cinema as Dostoevsky is the Russian novel and Mozart is German music. Listen to him, quote, a good craftsman loves the board he planes, unquote. So it's, it's actually beautiful because it's looking at the craft of filmmaking. And I, earlier we said that, I, you know, this, we were, I sort of introduced the idea of, like, I wanted to be a filmmaker more than a director. And I think mm. that Bresson in The Trial of Joan of Arc or Pickpocket or Diary of a Country Priest, he's involved in all aspects of it as a filmmaker and and that like has an attention to those to like how the tools work for us and and how to respect the tools and how to push the tools to go in directions that reveal new things about cinema no that sounds that that sounds brilliant that sounds that's definitely look how it's such a little book you can carry it in your backpack or your back pocket I'm definitely getting that. That's that's another copy to go on the. This this podcast is costing me so much money. <laughs> well, according to the back of this book, you could buy this for eight dollars and ninety five cents. So let's say ten euros. Yeah, nothing, nothing for for that. For the price of wisdom, which is uh, yes. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Lynn, thank you so much for uh, taking your time yes. to talk with me. Very nice to meet you. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation. It was a real pleasure to talk to Lynn about poetry and about filmmaking. Her recommended book was Robert Bresson's or Robert Bresson's uh, Notes on Cinematography, uh, which you should put on your reading list, as I have uh, immediately. Uh, all that remains is for me to thank Ellie Atkins for the music and Ali Howard for helping out with the artwork. Until the next episode, please take care. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.